Why don't you um, grab your Bibles, turn them to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's where we're up to in our series at the moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to read from verses uh, 2 down to verse 16. If you'd like to stand, if you can stand, um, I invite you to stand up and read as I am going to read the Bible this morning. Um, and I'm going to read from the English Standard Version today, just to change things up a little bit. Why don't you join with me? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting from verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her head and let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For the woman, uh, sorry, for the man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's disgraceful for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anything, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. That's God's word. Take a seat. While you're doing that, take a deep breath. There's some stuff in here that will blow your Facebook feed up faster than an I support mandatory vaccinations post will. <laughs> so we just need to stay calm for a moment and man, do we need to pray. So let's do that. Lord Jesus, this is your word and um, some of this stuff we read it and it just seems to sound harsh to our ears. It cuts against what we are familiar with maybe challenges our thinking in ways and we don't want to just in any way dismiss it simply because it um, seems strange to us. Lord, whatever you say, we want to take seriously, but help us to be wise this morning, help us to hear your voice, help me to speak carefully, help us to listen carefully. Amen. Look, in all seriousness, um, this is a passage that has caused deep sorrow for many Christians over the centuries. 
I think it's provoked endless debates. Even in my lifetime, I've heard this passage debated more times than I care to remember. It's certainly caused no small amount of tears amongst Christians over the centuries. I think people have been hurt. People have left churches over this passage. People have been asked to leave churches over this passage. Well, maybe over their interpretation of this passage, probably is a better way to say that. There have been men, and I use that word very particularly, there have been men who claim the name of Jesus and have wielded these verses like a weapon. I think probably an attempt to exercise some type of power or control. And I say all that because in the next 40 minutes or so, what I say about these verses has the potential to either bring hurt or maybe to bring healing. And I have been desperately praying for wisdom, but I've been desperately praying that you will find healing and hope in these verses and not hurt. So what I want to do is I want to begin with some basic background observations about this particular passage that might maybe help contain our considerations to somewhere that's actually helpful. Um, because it's at this point in the letter, we've been going through 1 Corinthians for, for one, quite some time now, and it's at this point in the letter that there's a bit of a shift in Paul's um, subject matter. And he starts to address how the church gathers together to worship. So a little bit what we're doing this morning. It would have looked quite different in Corinth in AD 55 when Paul wrote this letter, but nonetheless, he was addressing a church who was gathering together on a regular basis to bring worship, praise, to hear the God's Word, to remember the Lord like we've been doing this morning. And, and he starts now to address some of the issues that were coming up in the church in Corinth. And it's at this point in the letter, chapter 11, verse 2, that Paul begins to do that. Paul wants to give instructions about what Christian worship in the gathered setting, we know that there's worship for a Christian is all of life. Um, singing is not the only way that we, we define worship, but it's certainly a big part of the way that we do it as we gather together. We sing and remind each other of the praises of the Lord, as well as reflecting and remembering and reading. But Paul wants to give instructions about what that Christian worship should look like when it's formed and shaped by the gospel. So in other words, Paul would probably take exception to the somewhat popular statement now where we say, well, you should just worship however you feel comfortable. I would think that Paul might say, well, yes, but worship in a way that honours God, first and foremost. So over the next little while in our series, this week and in the weeks coming, we're going to just focus in a little bit. We're going to touch on the ways that we can get worship wrong. And how we can reorient our focus and our attention, our hearts on the gospel and how that might draw us closer to the heart of Christ in our worship. And this passage and this topic is the very first of the ways that we can get our public worship wrong. 
And that leads us to a question that I want you to consider. It's my big question for the morning. I think I've put it on the screen. Does God really care what you wear? All right? That's a question I'd like you to consider. Does God really care what you wear? Because if this passage is ultimately about how we worship together, did you notice that there is an awful lot of focus on who should wear hats and who shouldn't? All right? In this passage. I think it's a fair question to ask. When Paul starts to address the church in Corinth and he says, listen, this is the way you gather together to worship, one of the things he does, he starts talking about a dress code of some sort. What people wear, what they shouldn't wear, why they shouldn't wear it or why they should. So does God really care what you wear, especially what you wear to a church gathering as it comes together to worship? Now stick with me for a moment, because I think at the most basic level, we can easily answer that question. So, to our big question, we can easily, I think, give a big answer. And here's mine. Yes. God does really care what you wear. Even just by observing the amount of print space in your Bibles that this topic is given in Paul's letter... I think it's safe to assume that God has an opinion on what you do or don't wear during gathered worship. But let me be very quick in saying that my answer comes with a disclaimer. (laughs) This passage is not as simple as that. If it was as simple as saying, does God care what you wear? Yes, then done. We go home early. But it's not as simple as that. I think there are some cultural complexities that we need to unravel here a little bit. We need to untangle the way that we think in this world from the way that the Corinthian world thought. Because if you take a sneak peek around you, very slyly at the moment, you'll notice that none of the women are wearing hats today. And none of the men seem upset by it. So there's something going on. I saw that, Shah. Very good. Um... So while it's true to answer our big question, does God really care what you wear, with a yes, he does, we've probably got a little bit more digging to do in this passage to get to the bottom of what's going on in Corinth and what does that mean for Raymond Terrace. Ultimately, I don't really want you to walk out of here going, I know a lot more about Corinth in AD 55 today. I hope you do know a little bit more about Corinth and AD 55 and I'm much more concerned that you might go out with a heart's conviction to say, I think, I think this is what it means to follow Jesus in Raymond Terrace in 2022. Okay? So to help us do that, here's another question for you. What does this that we just read, what does this have to do with worship? Because that's what Paul's concerned about now. He's concerned about something that's happening in the church as they gather together. So we've got to try and untangle a little bit about what is, what is all of this stuff to do with hats and headship and all these terminologies that we used in that phrase. What has that got to do with worship? Because the passage does set up an unmistakable connection between a specific dress code and worship. In the community of God. 
And we need to try and figure out what that connection is. So to start with, let's just establish, I think, what truths from the passage here, chapter 11, verse 2 onwards, what truths here might be timeless in nature? And what I mean by that is um, truths that don't change over time and culture, and what practices might be specific to the church in Corinth? So I want you to go back and have a look at verses 2 and verse 3 and just focus your attention in your Bibles on there. I think I've got a slide for it. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2 and 3. I'll just read them out to you again. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is a husband, and the head of Christ is is God. We'll pause there. There is a timeless truth here that I think we can probably start to surmise from that little passage. Worship is about appropriately directing honour. Worship is about appropriately directing honour. Now, we can say, what what do we do when we worship? And there's all sorts of things that we can do. But what is it really about? What is worship? Well, worship is about appropriately directing honour. Now, there's some terminology in this passage you would have heard as we went through. It's fairly glaring in our ears generally. And that's the terminology of headship. You know, the head of someone. We just read it in those opening verses. Headship in the Bible is a really big subject. Um, Probably has a complexity that outstrips the amount of time that we've got available right today. But in this passage, it is essentially about the issue of honour. Headship and honour go together really closely in the Bible. So before Paul dives into stuff about head coverings, he makes a statement about headship. So what I want to do is just acknowledge now that it's very possible in a room this size, it is very possible that there are people here today, especially women, but not exclusively, who may have experienced abusive models of authority in the past. People who have manipulated their relationships with you through an imbalance of power and they did that for their own benefit and not theirs not yours all right that's not what paul's talking about here let me be very clear that type of relationship that i just described is not headship that's abuse plain and simple So we call it what it is and we fall on our knees in repentance if we've ever called it anything otherwise. And I'm confident that that's not what Paul's talking about because of the fact that Paul roots headship within the very relationship of God himself, within the Trinity. He he places headship in the relationship that God has amongst his own being, Father, Son and Spirit within the internal, perfect relationship that God has within himself, there is honour and headship. So in the statement we have here, right from the outset, 
I think we can establish that headship is about creating healthy pathways of giving honour. And those pathways have very distinct celebrations of the differences in our roles. And so even in this role here that is described in verse uh, 2 and verse 3, verse 3 in particular, I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ. There's a distinction between man and Jesus, between a wife and a husband. The head of Christ, he says, is God. There's distinctions even within the Godhead of their, who they are, how they interact with each other. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the same as the Father or the Spirit. And we're wading into deep stuff here with the Trinity and, and it, it, it goes beyond our way of thinking. But God is one and yet there are distinct relationships within the Godhead. And it's about honour. I think there are distinct celebrations in this verse about the differences even in our genders. And I know that cuts against the grain of our so-called enlightened age that we live in today, which has a desperate agenda to flatten the God-given image of man and woman. The design of male and female and going even further, continue just to create new genders, right? But, but even putting all of that aside, the timeless truth here is that worship is about appropriately directing honour. But the problem with our humanity is that we have an unhealthy lust for power. It was at the root of our downfall in the garden. Do you remember? Which tree are you allowed to eat from? Well, all the trees except that one over there. What would happen if you eat that one over there? Well, God said that we'll die. Surely not. Surely you won't die, the serpent says. In fact, he says, if you eat that, you shall be like God. And there was the hook, right? We have an unhealthy thirst for power. It's been our downfall ever since. And so I think Paul gives us a reality check in this passage and it's a way that we can safeguard against superiority in our worship. And so I want to jump onto this first. We're going to have to skip down the passage a little bit before we get to the stuff about hats. Here's a safeguarding against superiority and it's found in this passage. Have a look at it in verse 11 and verse 12. Chapter 11, verse 11. We'll just focus your attention there for a moment. Paul says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man. Nor man of woman. Just in case one gender felt that they were superior in that relationship. Men, you're not. We're not. We're not independent of each other. Verse 12, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman and all things are from God. Right? This is our safeguard against superiority. So here's a statement to try and help summarize that. In Christ, we are different from but not better than each other. 
So when we come to worship, specifically as we think about genders here this morning, male and female, yes, in Christ, let's celebrate the fact that we are different from each other, but neither better than each other. Our thirst for power, I think, has led humanity into all sorts of dark places and it is shameful that there have been those who call themselves Christians who haven't been immune from that. Even whole groups of Christians have set up structures of power to even try and further this. There's no end of examples, but the one that has the most relevance to our subject today is that of the abuse of power in the relationship between a man and a woman within the worshipping community. The answer to that type of abuse isn't to remove the difference between men and women. That might seem pretty culturally attractive today. But we can't say men and women are exactly the same, so don't exploit one gender in favour of the other. We're not the same. God created male and female, man and woman. And when he did so, he sat down at the end of his working week and he looked at them and he said, this is really good. It is very good. All right, our differences should be celebrated, not ignored. That's not how we just find unity. In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. See what Paul's doing there? He's setting a level playing ground there, not in the sense that we're the same. He says, yeah, we're different, but you can't say that one is better than the other, especially within the worshipping community. So in Christ, we are different from each other. Let's celebrate that, because God does. He looks at how he made man and he looks at how he made woman and he says, this is really good. We are not better than each other. There isn't a superior gender in Christ. When it comes to standing before Jesus, we stand as male and female, side by side on level ground. So that's how we should worship together as well. But we still need to figure out what's going on in Corinth with the whole uh, head covering business and what at all or if it has anything to do with us. And so to do that, we're going to get a little bit of a cultural background on something that was happening right across what was known as the Greco-Roman world. Basically, anywhere that um, the Roman Empire and prior to that, the Greek Empire had had influence culturally in the world. And it was happening all over the place. It was certainly happening at this time in about AD 55 when Paul wrote this letter. So I want to just give you a little bit of cultural background about an expression that was going on. And and just for your interest's sake, I'm going to throw some photos of the ruins of Corinth up on the board for you. They'll just cycle through on their own, Sandra. Um, You can go to Corinth today if you've got the money to fly there and walk around the ruins in which this church was home. There's not a lot there of the ancient city anymore. The bulk of the passage that we read this morning between verses 2 and verse 16 really detail um, a lot of something that was going on between men and women and 
head coverings. All right, so there was stuff in there about men who do cover their heads but shouldn't, women who don't cover their heads but should. There's stuff about their long hair, short hair, whether men and women should have either long or short hair. It's all a bit confusing as you read it through. Um, especially if you try and figure out what it means in verse 10 when Paul says, and don't forget, the angels are watching. Which, by the way, I don't have a clue <laughs> what Paul's talking about there. Um, there's some ideas around that people have healthy debates about what he actually means by that, but there's just a lot of confusion around it. But here's what we do know about Corinth. Nearly all the new Christians in the church had been saved out of, life, out of a lifestyle of pagan worship. The city centre alone, I've put a map up there in that photo, we will come to it in a moment. The city centre alone was absolutely packed with temples. There were, there were temples to Greek gods who had controlled the city before the Romans arrived. And they kept those. Um, then the Romans came and they built new temples to Roman gods. And then in amidst the Greek temples and the Roman temples, there's a whole bunch of small shrines to local superstitious beliefs which are attached to spirit worship that predated even the Greeks. So Corinth itself was an absolute multicultural and multi-religious experience of just worship, all these different gods or spirits. The other thing we know about Corinth, like a lot of the places in that time of the world, was that it was deeply class-driven, um, which means all of the cultural interactions in the city between people were based on a complex structure of superiority. Ways of being able to determine, am I lower class than this person or am I higher class than this person and what privileges or restrictions might that place on me? So Corinth was deeply class-driven. So during the time that Paul wrote this letter, there was a widespread practice amongst pagan worshippers, not only in Corinth, right across the Greco-Roman world, but certainly was true in Corinth. Um, there was a widespread practice amongst these pagan worshippers as they went off to the temple, where the higher class aristocracy, right, basically the people who were the top notch in society, and in general... You couldn't reach the top notch in society unless you were male. They would wear quite expensive clothing to worship. As they went there to gather with other people worshipping in the temple, one way that they could demonstrate their high class, their, their high born status in the community was to wear expensive or good clothing. Low class people couldn't afford that. They would wear cheaper clothing. And then you could look in the crowd and say, oh, they're the higher class people, they're the lower class people. Another thing that would happen is that these higher class um, robes that the men would wear, they would often, um, to, to demonstrate their superiority, 
would attach a hood. They would throw a hood over their head as they worshipped. It was a public way of demonstrating, I am high class. I am higher status. All right? I deserve your attention or your respect. So that was something that was very commonly practiced in the first century in pagan worship. That was men. But for women, a very dutiful Corinthian wife in AD 55 never left the house without a full head covering. Never. One way that we might demonstrate is we have a little bit of understanding about some of the Muslim cultures and Muslim um, cultural practices with head coverings. It's probably similar. So they would never have left the house, a wife, this is, a wife in, in the Corinthian culture, would never have left the house without covering her head with a shawl. It was a symbol that she was bound to her husband in marriage. A bit like a wedding ring does for us today in some ways. Put a, I don't have mine on, but... <laughs> mine, mine got lost, Kat knows about it. I've got to replace it. Um, so we would go out if you were married and you would demonstrate the fact that you're married because you would put a, most people, put a ring on, right? Um, if you ask someone to marry you, you give them a ring and they say, yes, I will, and they put it on, all right? It, it's just a symbol. Um, this was their symbol, a shawl covering the head. But there was a new kind of wife emerging in the Roman world in AD 55, and one who was rebelling against the cultural norms, and get this, it was culturally acceptable in AD 55 for a Roman husband to be as sexually promiscuous as he wanted, meaning he could have as many partners without any recourse on him. But a wife, no, that wasn't allowed. All right? And so there was a, um, a feminist uprising in the Roman world in around this time, where women, because they didn't have a lot of control over the things that were happening in their life, they took control in one of the areas that they did have control over. And you know what that was? When I go down to the shops, I'm not wearing my shawl. All right? And there was a, this is not just, this is not in church, this is just across culture. One ways, one of the ways in which wives could sort of flaunt that freedom was by removing their veils. And women began to rebel against the sort of um, abusive, one-sided type of superiority that was in that culture with men. And they began to subvert the cultural norms of their age in ways that they had some power over. And certainly one of those ways was how they presented themselves in public. So, a little bit of, a little bit of background on some cultural things that were happening in the first century. But when we pair that up against what we see, um, the, the specific practices that Paul addressed as a problem in the church in Corinth, I think that we can come up with some fairly healthy conclusions. So here's what headwear, I think, meant in Corinth. Headwear had become a symbolic way of exerting or demonstrating individual superiority. 
So whether you're a male or a female, how you covered your head or not became a way of you expressing something about your individual rights or your individual superiority. So for men, this was a direct sort of power play, all right? If I cover my head, I'm letting everyone know that I am high-born and therefore I am superior. For women, it was a far more subtle rebellion against male-driven abuse of authority. It was also a subversion, I think, of that control that demonstrated their own um, form of power, at least in the things that they had control over. And so the bulk of the verses that we have between verses 4 to verse 10 in particular, and then verses 13 down to verse 16, deal with the fact that this practice, I think, had somehow started to flow over into the worship practice of the church. New Christians that had been saved out of pagan worship simply adopted the old practices of their pagan worship and continued them in the worship services that existed to just simply honour Jesus as their head. And so, if socially elite men in the Corinthian church covered their head when they prayed or prophesied as the church gathered, they would be highlighting their social status instead of highlighting Christ. Right? He is the church's head. We've seen that right from the outset. Paul identifies that. By covering their head as they pray and they prophesy together as a church, not only were they highlighting their own status, more than likely they were putting on pressure on other people in the church. Hey, you know what? Um, it'd be best if you just stay quiet. You're low class, right? Only the high class people here. So they might exclude low status people from praying or prophesying simply by just demonstrating their high class status. So Paul commands Christian men, don't do that. Don't get up and cover your head when you pray or you prophesy. But for the women who had come to know Jesus, they also were discovering a new sexual and and relational ethic. And so a Christian wife should not deliberately remove her veil, especially while praying or prophesying during a time of corporate worship. Because that would contentiously identify her with these other sort of um, women in the wider community. And Paul says, don't do that either. So what does that mean for us? What does headship and headwear have to do with us? Well, I would say it has a lot to do with us, but also has nothing to do with us. Here's the first way that I think it has a lot to do with us, and that's in the idea of headship. Who the focus is when we, as a church, come together to worship matters. Is it me? Is it the worshipper? Or is it the one we worship? Headship matters. So who the focus is of our worship, who we seek to honour, and how we humble ourselves in worship rather than exalt ourselves in worship, all of that matters just as much in Raymond Terrace during the year AD 2022 as it did in Corinth 
during AD 55. But what about headwear? Well, I'd say that matters very little, if at all. Because Raymond Terrace in AD 2022 is literally a world and an age away from Corinth in AD 55. Our customs around headwear, what they signify, what they communicate, are completely different. In fact, our own cultural ideas around head coverings have changed dramatically just in the last 30 years alone in the wider community, let alone 2,000 years ago, somewhere in the Mediterranean. But what about our original question? Our original question was, does God really care what you wear? To which I answered, yes, he does. But in what way? In what way? Well, I think at least in two ways. Here's the first. Each culture and time, each culture and time will have unique expressions that I think celebrate the natural diversity and difference between male and female. In Corinth, it was headwear. In Australia, it's something different, maybe. But each culture will have unique expressions that celebrate the natural diversity and differences between male and female. So our church should do the same. Whatever differences exist, let's celebrate and champion our unique masculinity and our unique femininity, even how we present ourselves doesn't mean you've got to come all dressed up. In fact, I would say the more you dress up and sort of show that you've got some cash and you can afford to splash it, probably is a little bit like the guys who were throwing robes over their head. This is about me and about my status. But we can celebrate and champion unique maleness and unique femaleness even in the way that we present and dress. Neither male nor female is better, but we are certainly different from each other. And those differences are meant to complement each other, not compete with each other. So that means that our public worship is deficient if either voice is silent. Or if either voice is forced to sound like the other. So men, something specifically for you at the moment. Men, don't be ashamed of being a man who follows Jesus. Don't be ashamed of your masculinity. Use your unique voice to lead our attention to the worth and value of Jesus. And while you're doing that, elevate and champion the place of your sisters in this church. And women, don't be ashamed of being a woman who follows Jesus. Don't be ashamed of your femininity. Use your unique voice to direct and, and help us see the, the value and the worth of Jesus. And while you're doing that, honour the place of your brothers in this church. Here's the second way that it matters for us as a church. 
Let's identify and then abandon all attempts at personal superiority and make Jesus the main attraction of Raymond Terrace Community Church. You see, Paul's instruction to the church in Corinth was addressing, remember, problems in their gathered worship. When we get together, when we come together as a church, the issue in Corinth was that Jesus wasn't being made the main thing. Men were using worship as a means to promote themselves, while women were using worship to make a political statement. Both men and women had missed the point. The point is, worship is about Jesus. So when we gather to worship as a church here, men and women, side by side, right? Old or young, wealthy or poor, business owners, unemployed, whatever the the differences are between us, let's identify them and then cast away all attempts to elevate our own identities or our own agendas, our own superiority. Paul is asking us to weave our worship together in such a way that directs all honour and all praise and all worth to the one who is actually eternally worthy. And that's Jesus. I love, there's um, passages in in Revelation, I'm going to finish up on this, but Revelation chapter 4, I don't have it on the screen, but let me read to you, a little montage of verses from Revelation chapter 4 and verse 5, chapter 4 and chapter 5, sort of together. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's the song of heaven. John was caught up into heaven, given an insight into the heavenly places, and what he heard was this song Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In Revelation 5, he says he heard a new song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. That's the worship of heaven. That's the worship of eternity and is all about Jesus. Let's practice doing that now. Let's get ready for that. So when we say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, I could ask, all the men said, amen. Amen. All the women said, and all the people said, Amen. amen. Worthy is the Lamb. Lord, we want to bring, bring you glory and honour. Might not be by the way that we wear a hat or not. But there are dozens of other ways, Lord, that you've given us in our time and in our place to direct honour towards Jesus, to elevate each other in the place of worship as we gather. Lord, help us to identify the ways that we might be seeking our own superiority or our own agendas. Lord, give us humility to be able to cast them aside. Jesus, we want you 
to be the central attention seeker of this church. We want you to be the one that when we gather, it's just about you, not about us. So that we too can sing like all the angels and the the saints of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Because you are worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. Amen.